Show where we pick the wrong play, the wrong director, the wrong cast, and it all goes right. I'm your host, definitely not Jewish Princess Brie Rohde, and who is with me on the line today? Um, it's me, Peak Show regular at this point, um, Kelsey Goldman. <laughs> How's it going? And we have another special friend with us today. Hello, it is I, Jason Edwards, previous guest of the show. I think I'm technically here today, though, as a guest of Kelsey, which makes me like it's a double-layer guest. This is Peak Show with Kelsey Goldman featuring Jason Edwards. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. um, and and this is officially the crossover of the century uh, because we've had Kelsey on the podcast twice for regular episodes and Jason once for regular episodes. Um, you've both been on at the same time for the end of season finale party, which was not really an episode, but um, it was because of that party. Kelsey won our lightning round and got to choose a podcast topic which would put her in the driver's seat. So Kelsey, can you tell us what topic you've chosen and more importantly, why? So um, as you may have heard on the previous Adam Sandler episode, I have chosen to discuss uh, director, comedic genius, uh, auteur, Mel Brooks, um, because I think a lot about comedy as an adult a lot more than I thought I would as a child (laughs) Um, and I think that there's something so formative about Mel Brooks' movies for me and I just really want to dig into that with two of my favorite people so yeah and I love that we kind of drag Jason into this as well Um, Jason how did you feel when Kelsey said I want you to come on Peak Show with me and talk Mel Brooks very excited very honored Um, not really uh, qualified, I guess, but just a happy to be a part of things. Yeah, I think the tip. Uh, I wouldn't. Why I wanted to have Jason on here because it's my episode. Um, because mm-hmm. on our podcast, which might be returning at some point, <laughs> we've teased it multiple times now. Keep watching. Um, keep watch the space. Uh, we <laughs> we introduce things to each other that the other has never. Um, never experienced before and talk about how they've sort of like ruined us but jason and i were both familiar with mel brooks and had a deep love for his his stuff before we met each other so it's not something we can talk about in the format of our podcast um so this was a huge i think i'm kind of yeah 
I think I'm kind of the ideal third for this because even though I was definitely not ignorant of Mel Brooks, I'd seen most of Mel Brooks's movies and appreciated him. But I do not think I have put the kind of obsessive level uh, of, you know, thought and analysis into him as I have with other directors that I've liked, um, which we'll, we'll get into that as we get into our histories. With. So I like when you tell me like, oh, I think you're doing Mel Brooks, I almost said, oh, I don't know, because I always worry with podcasts that I don't sound like as much of an expert on. But I'm like, this is good, though. This is that's why I said this is a crossover because this is a bit of a ruin my life with Brie, but also we're doing it peak show style. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So now before we go any further, um, in recent weeks, we have gotten a peak Kelsey moment, but we haven't gotten a peak Jason moment. So, Jason, can you tell us about a moment in your life when someone asks, like, what sums up Jason Edwards? What would you point to? I would point to... I have two cop-out answers, and I think that combined that will add up to one real answer. Um, my first cop-out answer is that I feel that way whenever I'm with my friends, just riffing, joking, yucking it up, having some laughs, having a good time. <laughs> or, alternatively, when I'm by myself walking around in the woods. Um, and, and there are times when those two things do come into conflict. I have been on at least one uh, trip with a group of friends, and I will go on one of my, my famous walks. And after like an hour or two, people will be like, "Where is Jason? Okay, where where is he? Is he, he going <laughs> to come back?" And and Sarah, my wife, has to be like, "No, this is he does this. This is this is normal." Are, are you the elopement friend? Like, are you the high elopement risk? Like, you know, kind of like they label seniors in seniors' homes. Like, oh yeah, this guy's a wanderer. Like, <laughs> gotta watch out for this one. Yeah, pretty. Much. I would I would be in contention for that with our friend Ben, who is a, a whole podcast topic unto himself. Yeah. Um, but I believe so. Yeah. Um, my husband is the the elope, high elopement risk friend. I uh, had a work gathering yesterday, nice little like outdoor work party, and I discovered that there is a, a common like, hey, everyone, what happened to Bree moment? <laughs> but it's not because I went off and wandered on my own. It's because I like needed to go like 30 feet away to have a panic attack. <laughs> it's just like, oh, there and like. I haven't been around that many people since 2020, like even like outside. And so I was just like, oh, wow. Like, I think that interaction went really well, but like, I still need to breathe for a second. So, you know, we're, we've all got our quirks. Um, but so obviously we've gotten to the part where we talk about our own personal histories with Mel Brooks. And I think you guys have much more rich and deep personal histories with Mel Brooks than I. So uh, Kelsey, why don't you take it away? Um, yeah, so I, in preparation for this last night, I called my mom, um, because, uh, I have sort of like, I mean, and I've talked about this on, on previous podcasts, um, my parents are divorced and my parents are not similar people in a lot of ways. Um, but both, each of my parents introduced me to a specific Mel Brooks movie, um, my mom showed me Young Frankenstein. It is one of her favorite movies of all time. She was very adamant that I see it at a very young age. So much so that I can't, me or her could not pinpoint the age at which I first saw Young Frankenstein. But I'm pretty sure mm -hmm. it was pre-middle school. It was definitely elementary school, but I don't remember quite when. But I know like in in middle school, I was able to quote like large portions of it from memory. Um, and then my dad showed me Blazing Saddles. My dad and mm -hmm. my uncle on a on a family vacation were very um, 
were very like, oh, no, this is the movie that we need to introduce the whole family to. Oh, you know, at least like three of the cousins are old enough now to, to, to see this. Um, and it just kind of became a tradition like in our in our family to, to um, watch Mel Brooks movies. And, and um, I have a lot of theories to why my dad likes Blazing Saddles. The the number one one being that his name is Bart. Um, and I think that's a big part of it but I think those two movies having seen them at such a young age just really like were really formative to like what I appreciate in comedy um, Mm -hmm. in a lot of ways and like sort of showed me what what movies could be you know like showed me a different kind of thing than like kids movies you know and kind of Mm -hmm. opened up the that world to me and I I think that was Way more important than I realized at the time. Those those two and uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail um, were, like, I think probably the three most formative movies of my childhood. You sound a lot like Jared uh, right now and with all the, with that you're naming off, so uh, I, uh, I like that. Uh, all right, Jason, how about you? When did you get into Mel? I think I missed uh, kind of the, the, the typical induction into, into Phantom of Mel Brooks. Uh, into into the, mm-hmm. the the cult of Mel Brooks, um, shall we say? No, I'm not gonna say that. I'm sorry. Uh, forget I said that. Uh, and that my 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 I did not have my my dad or or, or an uncle introduce me in, into it. I was in eighth grade. Uh, I had a friend named David uh, who was never going to hear this, so I can say whatever I want. Uh, David <laughs> David, I, I feel like for the context of this story, I need to know was is black. Uh, he and he told me mm-hmm. he recommended the movie uh, Blazing Saddles to me, and 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 noted the. Um, I, I can't quote it in full up because it's Blazing Saddles, right? But there, the moment <laughs> yes. when when Bart greets the old woman on the street and she responds how she responds, uh, my friend David noted that as the moment that healed the racial divide of America. Uh, this this was two thousand two. <laughs> Everyone involved in the story is thirteen. It was a time when you could think something like that. Uh, though obviously I was you know motivated to go check it out, and and check it out I did, and and my. You know, we, we can talk more about that later, obviously. Uh, beyond that, I had another friend, Jeff. I'm re- I'm sorry, I'm rattling off so many, like, generic male names, I feel like, so far. <laughs> um, I, I, this, will, this will stop, I promise. And my friend Jeff introduced me to Spaceballs when we were both, like, 14, you know, 14, 13. That's a good age to, like, really watch any of these movies for the first time. Uh, and he was not not really a fan of Star Wars, but but I was. And yet we both were united in our love of Spaceballs. Um, and that, that's, that's really the extent of it until, uh, until now, essentially. Have you ever met anyone who like makes a point of pride? Like, oh, I've never seen Star Wars, but I've seen Spaceballs. Like, and like, I, I try, I try to be fair to people like that, but, uh, oh, Kelsey, Kelsey has. <laughs> I, I'm not a person who you makes are it one a, of those people. I'm not a person that makes it a point of pride, but I saw Spaceballs yeah. before I ever saw Star Wars. Oh, I think a lot of people yeah. did. Um, I think I might have. Because when I was trying to go back and consider my personal history, and like you guys know, I always have these really detailed uh, histories. But of course, these are topics that I've picked. And so these are things that are in my head. I actually can't remember what was the first Mel Brooks movie I watched. It was either Young Frankenstein or Spaceballs. I'm pretty sure it was Spaceballs. And I do... when. <laughs> 
very fun core memory I have was that Spaceballs was um, at at my local Walmart. Like you know how the um, the electronic section would always have like the same movie on all the TVs. Um, Spaceballs was playing for the longest time, and I just kind of watched it and finally like just I guess got my dad to rent it for us um, because we never owned it. But I do remember being quite young and seeing Young Frankenstein at a sleepover. Um, but I'd say when I first actually became more aware of Mel Brooks, um, there were two two things that happened around the same time. It was around 2003, 2004, because in 2003, my dance studio, we always did like a musical as a recital and like tied our songs into that. And we did a take on the producers, which I had actually never heard of. Um, now we had to like just kind of borrow like you know, names and plot points from the producers. We obviously couldn't be doing things like Springtime for Hitler <laughs> and a children's dance recital in Timmins, Ontario, which has approximately one Jewish person, my friend Stuart. Um, not not even several Jewish people because Stuart's mom was the, was the Jewish one and she did not live with him. So Stuart was literally the only Jewish person in town. I think he still lives there and is still the only Jewish person in town. Like I said, deeply Catholic place. Um, but uh, so that was like, and I remember when I was like reading about what this musical was really about, I'm like, this sounds weird as hell. I think this is right when it had come and like been adapted for Broadway. So um, we, they took us to see it the next year when we did our New York trip and I was really, really into it. That was also either the year or the year before, because I can't remember if this was 2003 or 2004. And I know this isn't actually related to Mel Brooks, but it's what got me back when doing a good rewatch of Young Frankenstein. Um, the terrible remake, the terrible Tim Burton remake of um, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory came out. And, um, you know, starring starring he who I'd rather not talk about right now. Um, and a lot of people were basically saying, like, no, no one can ever beat Gene Wilder. Gene Wilder was incredible. And I was like, you know, I need to go back and watch some Gene Wilder stuff again. And so, uh, you know, obviously watching the original uh, Charlie and the Chocolate Factory, which I'd kind of like Mandela. I always Mandela affect that as being a Mel Brooks movie, and it isn't. Um, uh, and I'm convinced he's like done some Roald Dahl uh, adaptations, and he hasn't. But um, but uh, then rewatching Young Frankenstein, I think the reason I still never was super like I've got to do my big watch through of all the Mel Brooks movies and stuff until maybe university is because. I was a film snob, but I thought, like, to me, the only auteur filmmakers were drama auteur filmmakers, you know? I went through my David Fincher phase. I really went through my Stanley Kubrick phase and stuff. Um, and I didn't really think about the art of comedy a lot. And, you know, like, it's interesting, Kelsey, you talked about, like, it was your kind of transition out of kids' movies. I think maybe the reason why I never sought out intelligent comedy for a long time was because... I was raised on non-kid-friendly comedy, but like crude stuff, like Farrelly Brothers shit, like Dumb and Dumber and Something About Mary. I watched it all in elementary school, which explains why I am the way I am. But because I never had that thing, like I want to seek out grown-up stuff because I had it, I also didn't really seek out smart comedy for a very long time. And so it wasn't until at least university that I did a full-on mel brooks kind of library rewatch so i was a late bloomer so now that we've gotten our own personal histories out this is where we're handing the well, you, one doesn't hand a driver's seat over 
But I will say, like, similar to Jesus, Kelsey take the wheel um, <laughs> because Kelsey is going to give a rundown of uh, of the history. So you guys don't have to sit through another 15 minutes of Brie Charmingly reading Wikipedia. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll try to be as charming in my paraphrasing of Wikipedia, but no promise. You are always charming, Kelsey. <laughs> Thank you. Um, so... Uh, Mel Brooks was born Melvin Kaminsky in Brooklyn in 1926 uh, to Eastern European Jewish parents, which I think you probably would have known if you've watched any of his movies. Um, he mm-hmm. is a very Jewish man. Um, his, uh, his uncle was a taxi driver and he used to drive Broadway doormen to like to to the theater and he would get sort of like tipped in tickets. So the first like sort of Broadway show that Mel Brooks ever saw was Anything Goes with Ethel Merman, which like amazing. And he basically decided he was nine years old and was like, I'm going to be in show business. Like, this is what I'm going to do. Um, well, and that was the golden age of child labor. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. At, at 14, he worked as like an MC um, and he was just sort of like, you know, yucking it up at various parties and stuff. Um, he learned how to play the drums from Buddy Rich. And so he could Amazing. get he could get um, gigs just playing drums, um, you know. And then he was drafted into the army in 1944, um, and he was in the Battle of the Bulge. And he, uh, after the end of the war, he was still over there, and he was organizing shows for uh, American soldiers and captured Germans. So, which is like something I, when I was doing this research, I hadn't thought about before the fact that like he made springtime for Hitler, but he also like fought in that war which is insane (laughs) i knew that he'd done military service but i had no idea that he had literally like done his own kind of i guess the the modern equivalent being uso shows yeah 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 Um, he was like an engineer like during the war and then i guess after he um he was like i'm just gonna put on some shows um and then when he got back from the war he did what all good jewish entertainers do in the 1940s and 50s um he went to the catskills and went to the borscht belt and um got work as a drummer and a pianist in in various nightclubs there um and he got his start as a comic when basically someone called out and they were like we need someone to do a type five (laughs) um and so he basically just worked his way up and made a lot of connections with a lot of other jewish entertainers in um in the catskills in um, that sort of circuit. Uh, in 1949, from those connections, he started working for in television. Um, he had a very close relationship with uh, Sid Caesar, uh, actor, comedian, legend, um, who hired him to write on um, his sort of variety program, Your Show of Shows, with uh, other writers, including Neil Simon and Carl Reiner. Um, you know, and he he worked he worked with that sort of core group of people a lot in the 50s and 60s um Carl Reiner and him developed a like sort of popular character of the 2000 year old man where Mel Brooks <laughs> would basically just improv like Carl Reiner would play the uh, sort of interviewer and ask him questions as the 2000 year old man you know you know what was Marie Antoinette like what was you know and he and Mel Brooks would just like improvise and people loved it um there's a they released a sort of a comedy album of it so you can listen to that but it it I watched a couple of clips and it is like it's pretty funny and it's it's so interesting to see what like what was entertainment and what was on TV then and how sort of different and how mm-hmm. much it's changed 
Um, well, Kelsey, uh, I have to ask because uh, as previously established on your show, you have not historically been as big a Simpsons watcher as Jason and I. Um, I was going to ask if you've ever seen the episode of The Simpsons, probably from about 95 or 96 that Mel Brooks was on. I haven't, um, no. It, this was probably my actual first exposure to Mel Brooks as a child, but um, Homer's driving him around in the limo and he asks him about the uh, the 2,000 year old man uh, thing. And he goes, sir, you know, in, in in our world, we have many different national anthems. Did you have different national anthems? They're like, oh, of course. But what we have was caves. And like, what was your caves national anthem? Let them all go to hell except cave 76. <laughs> Yeah, so he he works in TV for a lot of the the 50s and 60s. Um, he created Get Smart, the original Get Smart. Um, and one of the things he says about it is that, like, he was tired of seeing all of these sitcoms about families that were just sort of, like, a little bit off. And he's like, I wanted to make a show about an idiot. Um, <laughs> so I did. <laughs> and it ran for five seasons and won seven Emmys. So, you know. He he basically I had no idea that Get Smart was his creation. Yeah. I loved Get Smart when I was younger. Yeah, he he created it and was pretty involved in the first season and then kind of like let let it be. But um mm-hmm. yeah. Uh so in the seven in the late sixties is when he starts um making the transition to film. Um, he'd sort of been knocking around the idea of a musical comedy about Hitler as a way to sort of like uh <laughs> Uh, you know, get out some demons from from you know the war and just sort of really push the envelope. I guess um, he'd sort of tried it as a novel and a play, and then found some uh, found some people to produce and, and fund uh, his first feature film, The Producers. Um, that was 1968. Um, and I, I think we'll we'll talk a lot more about the producers when we sort of have a bigger discussion but um it was eventually like there the studios wouldn't touch it obviously for obvious reasons (laughs) like no one wanted it it was eventually released by like an an art it was released as an art film basically which is hilarious but uh people did see it um brooks won an oscar for best original screenplay and he beat stanley kubrick and john cassavetes (laughs) that's insane (laughs) Um, and but well deserved. Yeah, no, and it's it's. I have a lot of thoughts about uh, the producers. Obviously, it was adapted later into a highly successful musical. Um, his mm-hmm. second film, The Twelve Chairs, was not as successful. <laughs> That's really all we can say about it at this point. Mm-hmm. But his biggest successes in film were both achieved in the seventies. I would say, and he he actually has said this too. Um, in 1974, in spring of 1974, he released Blazing Saddles. And in the fall of 1974, he released Young Frankenstein. Big year for Mel Brooks. <laughs> um, Absolutely. And it was kind of interesting because I was reading and Gene Wilder was never... So Blazing Saddles, Gene Wilder and Cleavon Little were not supposed to be in that movie at all, which is... Mm-hmm. Uh, it had been sort of more typecast as he he had said it, um, and he'd and through a series of circumstances, they ended up being in the movie. And Gene Wilder only really agreed to be in the movie if Mel Brooks would sort of take a look at his side project that he was uh, he was working on, which was a sort of comedy adaptation of Frankenstein. So Gene Wilder is actually, mm-hmm. I think that that sort of speaks to Gene Wilder's performance in that film too. That he he very much cared about that project and wanted it to be yeah. something. And um, and so those kind of 
flowed into each other. Um, he in the seventies he also released his uh, silent movie. Um, which obviously is a send-up of silent movies, but is a silent movie. Um, mm-hmm. And High Anxiety, his uh, Hitchcock um, Hitchcock send-up, and then um, followed in the 80s with History of the World Part 1, Spaceballs, and Life Stinks. Um, uh, sorry, that was the early 90s. And then his last two movies that he's created since then are um, uh, Robin Hood, Men in Tights, uh, a movie that I revisited for this and I hadn't watched it in a really long time, which was very fun. Mm-hmm. And the notorious flop, Dracula Dead and Loving It. I had literally never heard of this movie <laughs> until I was doing research for this. I really thought Men in Tights was his last movie. Yeah. Um, I think he would rather people think that. <laughs> um, yeah. And, you know, he uh, he set up a production company and he continues to be a producer of like non-comedy films um, and, and did so in the in, in the, the 60 uh, in the 70s and 80s, too. Um, he was uh, notably a producer of David Lynch's The Elephant Man. Um Mm-hmm. which is interesting. Uh, then sort of <laughs> in the late 90s, he uh, returns to television and, um, you know, uh, starts working in music, adapting his uh, his stuff into the stage. So, um, you know, the musical adaptation of the producers won every Tony Award um, and was made into a, remade into a movie um, in the early, early aughts. Um, there was also a musical adaptation of Young Frankenstein, which wasn't as good, but, um still still happened uh he sort of joked about uh there being a musical adaptation of blazing saddles next um yeah but uh yeah and he currently at age 95 he's still alive god bless him well wasn't it just his birthday this week oh maybe he's 96 96. yeah (laughs) um he's writing and producing a series for i think hulu um history of the world part two uh um, as a follow-up to the, the 1981 film. He's also done a lot of, like, sort of voice work in, in uh, uh, animated movies. Um, he's in, like, the to- Toy Story 3 and, like, the Hotel Transylvania movies. And, you know, he's done a lot of sort of, like, bit parts, but I think he's he's basically been sort of hands-off as far as being the sort of creator of things um, for since the mid-'90s and, and or since the, mm-hmm. the early aughts with the musicals that he's, he's uh, created. And that's my hopefully kind of short Mel Brooks history lesson. Honestly, for how much he's done, I, I think it's impressively concise. Um, and yes, coming in off the news ticker, June 28th, he turned 96. Go Mel Brooks. Yeah. Still kicking. Still kicking. Yay. Um, so I've got a very simple question to ask everyone, but I always love asking people this uh, in, in for musicals. What is your favorite song from the producers? I think so... I think from the from the actual musical, it's um, the Have You Ever Heard the German Band that uh, the the writer guy Franz Frank I forget I forget his name does in does like mm-hmm. the whole version of which is in the is in the the movie briefly, mm-hmm. but it's so funny in the musical. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. <laughs> that musical is like when you watch the movie, you're like, oh, this is meant to be a musical. Like you. You're watching it, and there are songs in it, but you're like, oh, no, this should be a musical, and it works so yeah. well. 
Um, yeah, I was very lucky to have seen it as the musical first. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually surprised to find out it was originally a movie, but yeah. when I was a teenager, I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I, I also saw the musical first. I think I think a lot of people our age were exposed to the musical first before the the original. Um, yeah, but yeah, there there's so there's so many good songs in that musical. Mm-hmm. Jason, what about you, Jason? Uh, definitely, I want to be a producer. And I, I am somewhat ashamedly basing this off of the film version, um, but but Betrayed, mm-hmm. Nathan Lane's performance in Betrayed, I mean, say what you will about that movie. Um, it was clearly made by someone who had never made a movie before and only directed theater. Um, but I mean, you know, Susan, Susan uh, Strawman directed theater for like 30 years. I'm not, she's not a film director. Uh, that being said, mm-hmm. she got the funniest performance ever out of... <laughs> out of that man um i think it might be a bit of an unconventional one for me but it's because this was the first producer song i heard and i thought it was hilarious uh, is when you got it flaunt it um because that was like the solo that like one of the you know senior competition girls did that year and she like you know her choreography was amazing and it was the first like you know watching a musical theater solo and kind of realize like like oh I get what this humor is about. I like. I get what this is kind of sending up and lampooning. And um, yeah, I really liked it. I love the character of Ula. I I love Dit's archetypes and you know cute girl archetypes. Um, I'm also thinking about like when when the producers actually came to Broadway, like 2002, 2003 ish. Um, and I could be wrong, but I feel like that was a big career revival for Matthew Broderick. Like he'd been kind of farting around, to my knowledge. Like I remember like. Like he'd done like that terrible Inspector Gadget movie, and he was in the really bad, terrible Stepford Wives remake. And he was um, in that. <laughs> yeah, he was Nicole Kidman's husband. Like he was the male lead in that movie. It's it's so bad. I forgot that Christopher Walken is in that movie too. Like there are so many people in that movie who are do too good for it. But like, yeah, it I always like... love when a director. Or... Go ahead. Sorry. I just I love when a director or a project can be kind of like a little breath of fresh air for someone because that is I think best Matthew Broderick and um, I mean besides obviously like Ferris Bueller best Matthew Broderick since Ferris Bueller and that to me is always like the sign of a really good creator when they can find someone and really just like you know dig into their into their marrow and get the best out of them. I yeah I think I think that's one of the things uh, that makes the um the musical work so well is that nathan lane and matthew broderick are perfect for those roles um in the same way that zero mostel and gene wilder were perfect for the original roles um Mm -hmm. like i kind of don't think anyone else could have played them um Mm -hmm. but yeah and, and i think that's actually the big letdown of the movie is the casting of Uma Thurman in as the role of Ula because she was not good. Um, it was mm-hmm. an odd choice. Yeah, I agree. It was an odd choice. But to prepare for this, I watched almost all of his movies that he uh, directed in and wrote um, wow. in chronological order, except for Dracula Dead and Loving It because I was having a bad day and I didn't want to watch a bad movie. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Yeah. So we could just go in order if you yeah. like. Um, I just have I have a couple of things to say about the producers because I think it is such a sure weirdly specific and important piece of American cinema. <laughs> um, uh-huh. I, 
and like for me it was so interesting because i had seen i'd seen both the the main stars of it in other context in that uh zero mostel to me is tevia like that's who he is <laughs> um, that's that's just what it is and you know as a kid growing up in the 90s like gene wilder is willy wonka that's that's who he is and yeah. it was it was such a you know i didn't see this movie until high school um mm-hmm. but um it was such a, a weird refreshing and just like out there take on a thing that i you know mm-hmm. i just wasn't expecting and i think it as far as like the history of cinema goes like I don't know how this movie got made, but I'm so glad that it did <laughs> because no one was sort of doing that kind of thing before. And I think it kind of opened the door, not as much as Blazing Saddles did, but it opened the door for like a different kind of comedic approach to things that wasn't just mm-hmm. slapstick, wasn't wasn't just, you know, specifically, you know, witty or gross out, but was kind of this combination of all of those things and was really smart and and mm. interesting. I think I think the thing about the producers that always surprises me is how how kind of smart it is and how like and for most of Mel Brooks's movies like watching them through as as a 32-year-old was like oh wait this is a lot there's a lot more layers to this than I thought there were originally and that that's always Oh, absolutely. really really interesting to see. Um yeah. I've been trying to think over the last few days about like, you know, what I would sum up his style as. And I think you're right, Kelsey, that it is layers of many things because I was at first I think like, oh, the thing that defines Mel Brooks is how he uh, incorporates physical physical comedy. But then I was like, no, the thing that defines Mel Brooks is how he incorporates, um, uh, what's the term? Um, like cynicism and then um even some ideas of like you know the sliding scale of hope versus cynicism and then i'm just like you know it's kind of a little bit of everything and it's funny because it's a little bit of everything and yet he is so distinct um you know his style is so identifiable and yet i cannot sum it up in one word or even one phrase and it you know this is jumping ahead a little bit but i watched his one movie that's not like a sort of the the other thing I think about Mel Brooks's movies is that they're all kind of about making movies. Um, mm-hmm. And I watched his one movie that's not like that, that doesn't break the fourth wall, that doesn't have like a parody element, um, Life Stinks. And it it doesn't feel like a Mel Brooks movie totally. And mm-hmm. because of that, because it doesn't have that specific style. Like there are times when it does, but it, it just, it it lacks something and you can really feel the the lack of it, you know? Mm-hmm. but let's there's talk a... go ahead sorry well the, there's a quote um from a new yorker piece that i was recently reading that thought for this that and um it, it ties into the producers a bit um is uh he was interviewed um the headline is that you know mel brooks doesn't view himself as a jewish humorist he doesn't consider his comedy quote-unquote jewish but more new york which first of all i found fun and funny because um a few months ago on our seinfeld episode we were talking about how two new york was just a code for two jewish um but i thought this was the great crux of the argument and i'll warn you that there is a term that i will probably mispronounce so kelsey when the time comes school me um so he says there's some cruelty that you find in new york humor that you wouldn't find in yiddish humor in new york you make fun of somebody who walks funny you never find that in uh this is sh- shalom uh, a lot what is this term kelsey <laughs> shalom <Aleichem? laughs> 
Sholem Alechem. Alechem? Yeah. Okay, which yeah. I, I think it's, I'm not used to pronouncing things like, that way. I'm like, yeah. That's the, the, that's a lot of a lot of in in Yiddish. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Where I'm, I'm French. I'm not used to that. Um, but so it is, it is funny though because I go back and forth. And because when I read that, I was I I was like, I don't think of his humor as cruel. And then I was like, no, wait, it's actually very cruel. But like maybe the difference is it's not rooted in hatred. Because like you could say the producers, like he said, he had gotten a lot of you know very hurt feedback um, on the producers, you know, from Jewish people and Holocaust survivors, and he's never denied them that hurt. But um, like. His the humor in the producers is not rooted in hatred, and so maybe like I've just been thinking about that a lot. The way he views his own humor as cruel and thus very New York, and so not as Jewish, which I'm like, I'm sure he's correct, but I I had not thought of his humor as being quote unquote cruel in that way before. I think it's you know I think one of the things I was thinking about you know when you said not rooted in in hatred, I think there's there's a, a thing where it's like the you always feel like you're in on the joke, I feel like, in his movies. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like I, as a viewer, am being made fun of, which I do sometimes yeah. in, in worse movies. <laughs> um, oh, um, absolutely. Uh, and, and, and I think, you know, personally, I haven't done, like, a whole thesis or anything. I think that one of the great things about Mel Brooks' humor and why it's, why it's somewhat timeless um, is that, like, he is like as far as like his sort of social commentary very much on the right side of history and oh totally and like very much like plugged into like the the butt of many of the jokes are like the bad people you know they're they're not he's not like aiming super low with who he's trying to to send up and i Mm -hmm. really appreciate that because but in a way that it doesn't feel you know, like he's aiming high on who who he's going after, but it still feels kind of like low crass humor. And there's such an art there to be able to like to do that. And I think that's that's like really where Mel Brooks sits as far as like his talent and his what he brings to it, because like he's, you know, he's sending up these big corporations. He's sending up racists. He's sending up, you know, greedy producers and, and whatnot. Um, but it doesn't mm-hmm. feel like. It doesn't feel like he's trying to say I'm better than you because I'm because I'm doing this. And it doesn't feel like um, anyone who is hurt by those people is technically is the butt of the joke. Like you don't like you're watching when you're watching the producers and you know, this whole thing springtime for Hitler as a Jew. I am not offended by it. And like, obviously, I know I was not in the Holocaust and like that was not a thing. And I can yeah. I can see how people who experience that would have a reaction to this movie but the whole thing is making Mm -hmm. fun of hitler and like that's funny and that's something that you know i think jewish people very much latch on to because they they want to laugh about their pain (laughs) yeah which is so there there's another great quote that i found and i think this one of his has been quoted a lot more um it's in john robert colombo's book popcorn in paradise in which mel brooks was quoted Uh, I said, bad taste is simply saying the truth before it should be said. And um, which made me think weirdly of like the sports landscape with like Nora Loretto and the Humboldt controversy in which like when we see something that we don't necessarily disagree with, but we don't want to be associated with it, we'll say like, oh, that was in bad taste. It's interesting because it becomes more about politics and comedy and 
people calling things bad tastes, like I associate that now with goalpost moving, it'll always be too soon to talk about things like to be contemporary, like the gun control conversation. And to circle it back to Mel Brooks, though, I think that to me is not only what makes him a very good filmmaker, because he does, you know, I know this is such a cliche, but he does speak truth to power a lot. Um, but the fact that he uses humor to very intelligently take those things down, I think is kind of what separates a comedian from a humorist. And like there are different definitions of humorist, like it tends to be applied more like radio teleplay types like G Garrison Keillor or like in Candace Stewart McLean or Dave Barry on the newspaper side. But I think I've subscribed more to the definition of humorist as someone who explores comedy and writes comedy that is based on like the fundamental question, why do we find something funny? And Brooks has a lot of ponderings and reflections on comedy that is very keenly aware of how comedy works and what it's rooted in. And so that's why I really think he's like one of the best 20th century humorists, if we're going by humorist by that definition. <laughs> yeah. And I, no, I, I think that's... Go ahead. Go ahead oh, Jason. I was going to say the thing that he identified in that earlier quote as cruelty, Kelsey, is I think mm -hmm. the crassness you, you identified a, a minute ago, right? It is a, an ability to acknowledge the the frailty of the human, everything, the human body, the human mind and entire human project, um, and, to, and, to, and to enjoy that, right? To acknowledge that the things that make us weak or, or stupid or, you know, like ugly or, or just like off-putting or anything, you know, evil even, those things are funny. Um, and what's also funny is the people who are like the kind of people he's targeting with this sort of more uh, uh, zoomed out, I guess, large, you know, big, big picture satire, uh, those people are also people, and it, that's inherently funny, and he has a good way of, um, I say it's inherently funny, it's not easy to actually communicate that properly. I think if you want to look at an example mm -hmm. of, like, say, when, when you look at something like Jojo Rabbit, you can see, first of all, that it's mm -hmm. not always easy to make a, you know, a, a, a complicated or like you know, heated issue compelling on any level. Uh, I think, frankly, you also see why the only people who can make a silly Hitler story are should be people who actually like served in World War II, uh, or at least were mm -hmm. alive during World War II. That that, that, that that's just me. I, I don't mean to. Yeah. They're not really comparable, but I, I do think that uh, yeah, no. Mel Brooks has a real is really in touch with humanity and the way that can manifest through, manifest through yeah. frankly very dumb jokes and observations, but presented with that yeah. that Mel Brooks essence of comedy spirit that makes it all so funny anyway yeah he mm -hmm. says uh i watched a, a documentary on him he says in that he um the interviewer asked him do people ask you if you ever want to make serious films and he says I, I tell them i get up on my high horse and i say bullshit all my films are serious you can't uh, you can examine any of them, any one of them as serious because they are passionate and they depict human behavior at different points in the history of humanity. They're not dramatic. That's the difference. But they're serious. And I thought like that really like hit me because like they are. They're addressing a lot of serious, you know, topics and stuff. And he, you know, he he's very upfront about that. Um, and I think that is what makes his his movie so good. Um Mm -hmm. uh, before we leave the producers, I want to say that my favorite thing that I learned about the producers was that in Sweden, the title of the producers is actually just Springtime for Hitler. <laughs> um, and as a result of the success of that movie in Sweden, 
all of his uh, subsequent movies has been, have been given similar names. So Blazing Saddles is called Springtime for the Sheriff. Um, <laughs> Springtime for Frankenstein. Uh, Springtime for Lunatics is High Anxiety. Um, <laughs> that, that Springtime for World good. History. Springtime for Lunatics. Yeah, yeah I like that one. Uh, springtime for Space. <laughs> That's so. kind of, that doesn't really work so well. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I, you know, I'm always going to bring it back to this. I'm just picturing all these, like, I, I don't know, if someday if the Leafs make it past first round, I past the first round, I'm going to make a big post that says springtime for Willie. Um, <laughs> or, well, actually, all the Swedes. Springtime for Willie and Rasmus and Timmy. Love that. Um, I, so, had, I had no idea. So he did make a, a second movie, uh, The Twelve Chairs, which is a which is actually a adaptation of a Russian satirical novel. Um, mm-hmm. I learned. Um, it's okay. Uh, it stars a young Frank Langella looking really good. <laughs> I will say. Um, but yeah, it's it. The one thing it kind of did give me is I think there's this through line in in Mel Brooks's work about relationships between men. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and I think a lot of that comes from, which I don't think I mentioned this in my history lesson. Uh, Mel Brooks's father died when he was two years old. He, yeah, uh, he did, he was he raised, did mention that. But. Yeah. He, he was raised by a single mm-hmm. mother. Um, I think if you, like, there's this sort of through line in his movies, but about the relationships, like between, uh, both between men of, of similar ages, um, like you see in Blazing Saddles or like these sort of fatherly, uh, relationships or relationships about, uh, fatherhood in a way um uh which i thought was really interesting when i was watching it because uh he he actually says you know young like the the frankenstein myth in general is about the male inability to create to like have children to be the thing that that creates life and that's what like the root of that that story is and that is is what what young frankenstein is about it's about legacy and 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 um the sort of lack of it when as a, as a uh, um, as someone who doesn't necessarily have children, and I thought that was really um, really interesting. Um, yeah, so that was really what the Twelve Chairs brought me. Uh, it's because it's a, it's about it, it hinges on a relationship between two uh, uh, two men, one who is older and one who is younger. Um, and I I thought mm-hmm. that that was really a, an interesting through line in a lot of his movies. But I think mm-hmm. we should talk about what I think is really the movie that is Mel Brooks's breakout success, which is Blazing Saddles. Yeah. You couldn't make that today. <laughs> <laughs> I like how that's, I like how now at least that's become a joke. Like the way, like we, I don't think anyone has actually sincerely said you couldn't make Blazing Saddles today in at least a year, at least this calendar year, <laughs> which is good. We need to stop saying that. Yeah. But here's my question. Um, could you make mm-hmm. Blazing Saddles today? A nation asks, two nations sit in, in, in wonder. That's true. Um, I, could you, okay, I will say when I was thinking, your talk about the producers made me think about this. Um, studios take absolutely zero risks these days. So I don't think any Mel Brooks movie, <laughs> frankly, could, if especially, I mean, well, Okay, a Mel Brooks movie could get made today because it's Mel Brooks and studios would throw their money behind Mel Brooks. But if, you know, Joe Schmo, just as talented, but not, you know, not a known entity, 
were to pitch any of his movies, they wouldn't be made. Studios do not take risks, uh, especially on like mid-budget things that do not have beautiful chiseled people in them. So I think, you know, forget Blazing Saddles. You couldn't make young Frankenstein mm. today. Yeah. Um, but, you know, in, in terms of the, the, the way racism is depicted, I mean, so like... <laughs> with Blazing Saddles. I mean, I think I've, I first saw Blazing Saddles. I was a little late to that party. I was 17 when I saw Blazing Saddles. I think it was at my 17th birthday, um, which um, was a fine way to ring it in. I watched Blazing Saddles and I watched Spider-Man 2. Oh, nice. Um, nice. Good, weird good. mix, but a good mix. Yeah, it's good vibes that um, party. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so um, there's a weird dissonance because we know it's not comparable to say like overt angry racism, but like, and I'm talking about specifically for the millennial generation, but we can't articulate why we can't articulate why, you know, blazing saddles is okay versus, you know, like just some asshole screaming the N word. Um, a huge part of me is that we weren't there. We don't understand the context of entertainment at the time. And I think that's fine. Um, and it is fine to not fully understand firsthand what comedy was at the time. Um, I even recently was listening to um, a Simpsons podcast, actually, where they were talking about uh, the episode Like Father, Like Clown, where it was Krusty's Jewish heritage is revealed. And there's a lot of parody of the movie The Jazz Singer in it. And they were talking on the podcast about the blackface in The Jazz Singer and how that hasn't aged well. And someone commented on the episode and pointed out that there was a cultural context for that, because back in the era depicted in The Jazz Singer, the only way a Jewish performer could perform on stage was if they were doing blackface. That's multiple layers of horrifying, but that's examples of how, like, when people say, oh, you can't judge this piece of culture by today's standards, they don't even just mean people were more racist then. They mean that there's the codes for things, the rules for things, who could and couldn't work. And even, like, with getting Blazing Saddles made, like, it was hard even, you know, like, finding the right star, like, you know, insuring Richard Pryor, for example. Like, that's, it was the a very wouldn't do it. complicated they, production. Yeah. Yeah. The, so Richard Pryor was on the writing team for Blazing Saddles and Mel Brooks wanted mm. him to star in it. Um, but the studio mm. was like, Richard Pryor does drugs and we don't want that liability. So he will not mm. be starring in the movie. Um, and it's... Uh, and and Richard Pryor, uh, you know, Mel was like, who, who, who do you want to play this part if they're not going to let you? Um, and he sort of like <laughs> approved Cleavon Little's casting, um, which I think is Mel Brooks said something interesting because the the other the Waco kid part was also given to an actor who was, uh, I think, like a, a like someone who had been in Westerns, um, like mm -hmm. pretty typically. So he had kind of said that I had kind of typecast the movie. Um, and then that guy was a recovering alcoholic and he went into like alcohol withdrawal syndrome on the first day of shooting and they had to fly Oops. in. So like he, he was taken to the hospital and, and, you know, I think he was fine, but they had to fly in, uh, Gene Wilder, who was not like the type of actor that they wanted for this role. <laughs> but Cleavon Little was like a, a Juilliard trained you know, like a, like a professionally trained, like a, you know, stage actor. He's not the person you expected mm -hmm. in that either. And I think the movie is made by having those two people in those roles, even though they weren't supposed to be. Because you really, mm -hmm. they have a, a great chemistry and you really feel the relationship between them forming throughout the movie. And they both just approach it with such an interesting uh, sort of angle that it really, really mm -hmm. works. But yeah, and it... it 
but it the movie couldn't get made with Richard Pryor. It had to get Cleavon Little, who is a very like clean cut, clean cut, professionally trained actor, to mm-hmm. to be made. Basically, the um now that you've pointed out the way he depicts male relationships, um, it's all I can think of, and I kind of want to watch Blazing Saddles again just for that. Yeah, because it's. It's a bro hug movie. <laughs> yeah, it's a really it's a really nice subtle bromance in a way that I don't I don't think I really picked up on when I first saw it and it's they sort of ride off into the sunset yes, together. Yes, I was going to say it's literally <laughs> the two of them ride off together into the sunset at the end of the movie. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful story. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Um, do in, we need, in a limo, which is very sweet. Do we need to So, yeah, so basically Young Frankenstein got made because Gene Wilder came onto the Blazing Saddle set and was like Hey, Mel, I have this idea. <laughs> um, it, it's uh, sort of a riff on on Frankenstein. You wanna, um, you wanna see it and sort of like go in on this with me, basically. Um, it's also like insane to me that this this movie came out the same year as Blazing Saddles. Like that's that's wild. Like that's just back to back bangers for Mel Brooks. Um, Absolutely. But I think Gene Wilder being one of the the creative forces behind this movie makes me look at his performance in a really different way because he plays it so straight the whole time in, in yeah. And it works because of that. Like everyone else around Mm -hmm. him is doing sort of like big comedy in a way, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, and he's doing like over the top acting, but in a way that is like very clearly an homage to like the universal movies, like, but it's not it's not like necessarily for like it is for comedic purposes, but like he is playing it as a dramatic role in a very specific way. And I think it's such a, a, a wonderful performance that he that he gives. And then it it is only offset by, you know, Marty Feldman and Madeline Kahn and uh, Terry Garr and Cloris Leachman, like doing like the, the bigger, more like unsubtle comedy parts. Um, and it just, it, everything yeah. works together so well. Um, I think it is fair to say that Wilder's the straight man in it, but you're right. It's kind of a non-traditional straight man. Yeah. Um, but it's more like he's in a different movie than everyone else. Um, <laughs> I think Marty Feldman is kind of the, I don't want to say unsung hero because he is like, you know, among the top build, but really like, I think there's a, there's a real tenderness to his performance, um, which I find really sweet. And like, because also I was, I think I might have been six or seven when I saw this, which um, unlike a lot of like peak show origin story, I think that's actually a perfectly reasonable age to see young mm-hmm. Frankenstein, I think. Um, and uh, but I was much older when I realized that Marty Feldman actually, for lack of better words, actually looks like that. Yeah. Like, uh, as, and uh, I, I don't know, there's, there's a real sweetness to him as, as Igor. Um, and I don't know, it's the ultimate comfort movie for me. Um, the putting on the Ritz scene, obviously like it's, I think that might've been the first time I ever heard that song. Um, oh, that was definitely the first time I ever heard that song. One of the best movie music moments of all time, I think. Mm-hmm. One of the things about the the production of this movie was that, you know, Mel Brooks and, and Gene Wilder were both very adamant that it was shot in black and white. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Warner Brothers, who had uh, released Blazing Saddles, 
was like, okay, well, we'll shoot it on like color film and then we'll like new desaturate it or whatever. Um, and Mel Brooks was like, no, because then you'll release it in color <laughs> later and I don't want you to do that. Yeah. Um, so he like basically he and the and the other producers took it to uh, a different studio and was like, so it was released by by Fox because they agreed to they they thought it was it should be shot in black and white and. Um, I, I think that I have like a real respect for for uh, Mel Brooks for sticking to his guns there. Smart guy. Oh, um, guy. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm picturing how it would look colorized and I hate it. It feels I really wrong. I don't like it. Yeah. And he kind of talked about how like there in the original sort of Frankenstein universal, like there is a, a sadness and a uh, like a poignance to like the f- character of Frankenstein's monster that mm-hmm. would not come through if it was in color, like just wouldn't mm-hmm. work. And he wanted to like sort of capture that. Um, well, first of all, it, every time I see this movie, no matter how many times I see it, it blows my mind that Peter Boyle is playing the monster. And he's so amazing, <laughs> right? But to me, it, I think of him as the the dad from Everybody Loves Raymond. I never watched Everybody <laughs> Loves Raymond, but you know, I've seen it on a thousand times in my life. Um, and I feel well, like, like he, everyone hates Raymond. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like he lost like three or four feet between the two movies or the maybe that sounds stupid maybe he's like using platform shoes in the movie and everyone knows that but me I don't know it always freaks me out though and I never can accept it um also <laughs> Martin, Marty Fieldman so funny uh I, I think that this ties into some things you all were, were talking about earlier um which is that the relationship between uh Dr. Frankenstein and Igor is really is there's a lot of like power imbalance stuff you you could get out of that and maybe I don't know some some quasi ableist oh, quasi is not a good um <laughs> uh, scratch that scratch that uh, anyway the the way their relationship is depicted soft ableism we'll call it soft, <laughs> soft ableism. ableism thank you that's so much better uh, it's very yeah. good it's very careful it's not like overly concerned with it like, like Igor is basically not in the last half of the movie. Um, but Igor. Igor, I, I heard it as soon as I said it. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Igor uh, is always like the doctor never really gets one over on him. Like Igor is like playing the part of the like you know the the servile like you know hunch, hunchbacked um, uh, servant, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but he's like you know he's like I know that you're a ridiculous man and I'm going to do do my job, but also I, I do not respect you more than you deserve. <laughs> Yeah, I- yeah, Igor is very much in control of the situation. Yes. Yes. <laughs> There's a great moment at the very beginning when he, you know, goes and he, uh, 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 Gene Wilder, you know, touches the the hump on his back and he says, oh, sorry, I didn't mean to touch your hump. And Igor's just like, what? What? And, <laughs> what? and the way they move on very quickly from that, you know, that's where I think it separated it separates it a little bit from modern comedy even good modern comedy because you know now we derive humor from you know repeating the same beat over and over or and sometimes what that feels like to me is explaining the joke too much and because i wouldn't i would never define that as absurdist humor um just kind of like someone not reacting but increasingly because of the way comedy is it is a little absurd because yeah, this is someone just not reacting to, you know, their very obvious physical, this might not be the right word, physical deformity, and not explaining it. And so it almost seems absurd by modern standards because we're so used to jokes being over-explained. Yeah, and that's sort of like that, this is the wrong word, but modularity of his humor, like it's modular. Does that make Mm -hmm. sense? Like the, the humor in his movies is not like, 
a, a building up of like references and callbacks and allusions or jokes, right? It's like every gag basically, with, with exceptions, right? But basically every gag is like one gag, it plays out entirely in front of you in a short amount of time, and then we're gone, we're done, we're moving on. Um, if, it, if you didn't like mm-hmm. it, good. You're not going to hear it again. <laughs> and here's another joke yeah. coming down the pipe in 30 seconds. And the stuff that is repeated, I think, is like isn't explained really in a in a way that is is nice. Like I rewatched Blazing Saddles last night because I was feeling sad, um, and I for like the first time noticed that there are, are just cows, like in random scenes <laughs> in Blazing Saddles, like in the movie theater at the end, like where they shouldn't be. There are cows where they shouldn't be the entire movie of Blazing Saddles, and it's just never explained. It's just that's what it is. And that kind of thing made that made me laugh so hard for like I can't tell you why, but it was hilarious and it, it made me laugh. And you know, the and and there are sort of sort of repeated motifs, I think, but like there's always a little bit of a spin on the joke, right? Because you have the like the first time he he's like, Oh, I didn't mean to touch your hump, and he's like, What hump? And then like later in the movie he's like, Wasn't that on the other No. <laughs> and then we just move on. We just move on. Yeah. So we all there's... know what's going on, but like it's not like so beat down into you that you you feel like you're supposed to get it or whatever. And that's like the There's beauty certain... of these movies is that like mm-hmm. no matter how many times I watch it, like there's more jokes that I am yeah. noticing. There's a certain type of very confident comedy where um, the what makes it funny uh, is that it's um, – it, or it, it, you can tell a joke or a bit was written because it made the creator themselves laugh, and it's kind of like there. The confidence of it comes from well, if this made me laugh, this is going to make the audience laugh. And I think I think that's that's a lot of a lot of the style of writing that that Mel Brooks does. And he wrote like there's a an, an amount of movies that he sort of wrote in like a writer's room, kind of like you would on a on a, a TV show, he like, you know, the story was his or the story was someone else's. And he's like, okay, this is how we're going to do it. But like, he's just bringing people together and being like, okay, what, what's funny? What can we put in here? Um, mm-hmm. And I think that just creates a really specific style. Um, mm-hmm. I feel like also, as I'm looking at the movies, I feel like young Frankenstein was kind of, this was the point when the Mel Brooks like cast of preferred players was really solidified in terms of who he worked with. So yeah, I think it's uh you know you have um, Cloris Leachman, you have Madeline Kahn, uh, mm-hmm. Gene Wilder, Marty Feldman um, are in this this movie, and there's mm-hmm. a couple other people that um uh that are sort of smaller parts that make um uh make appearances. I think that the um. Blazing Saddles has like the rest of his uh his his uh, main his crew. crew of people because you have like Dom DeLuise on in a in a cameo in that um right. and he he makes appearances in m- most of uh, Mel Brooks's movies um and I I think that uh if we're getting into that I want to talk about Mel Brooks and women in some ways because uh-huh. i think like i've i've talked about you know i think his his a lot of his creative force is about versus between, between men but how he treats female characters in his movies is so almost very ahead of its time in that mm-hmm. like i don't feel like 
like they are stock characters because he's making fun of stock characters. <laughs> like that's yes. like it's you know, but like the the ability to let Madeline Kahn be both sexy and hilarious is something that I don't think people were really doing with women in in that time. Like she is both a, a bombshell, uh, you know, uh, an ingenue, and also just so so funny and. Mm. I love everything about her. <laughs> well, I mean, and she's a lot of his character. His you're, you're right that they're kind of stock characters, but they also, in a weird way, they're stock characters with agency, um, which is almost like an affectionate spin on this trope character or this stock character. Um, and I think you know because a lot of his movies are very self-aware, very winking at the audience, and very like you said. A lot of them are about making movies um, and there's so it's almost like winking at the audience. And so I think that that's the reason why it feels progressive the way he writes women, because when they are being a stereotype or a trope, we are in on the joke and the joke is about that stereotype. You know, that's maybe that's part of why as a 13 year old, I was fascinated with when you got it flaunted, because I could tell like that is a satire of weaponized femininity. Yeah, it's like the, you know, the like Terry Garr's role in in Young Frankenstein, like it is not a huge role, but like it is very clearly doing a thing where it is making fun of this like, oh, here's this cute blonde lady that is like assisting him in the laboratory <laughs> um, and mm. just very, very clearly being like, oh, no, this is what this relationship is. Um, uh, and and I I really I. I just I really love the way that he uses both Madeline Kahn and Cloris Leachman in very different ways. Cloris Leachman is underappreciated, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, but she is fucking great in this. And she is also very, very good in High Anxiety um, from a little later in his uh, his repertoire. Um, and I, I just, I don't feel like I appreciated her enough when she was alive and she just died last year. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I just, I really... Uh- appreciate his like him not being afraid to let women be funny um which i feel like a lot of comedians of his time definitely were (laughs) oh absolutely Uh, people are still afraid to let women be funny and when they are and we talked about this in our judd apatow episode but now when women are funny it's always the she's funny because she's such a mess and this woman's funny because she's having a meltdown and talking about pooping herself and like which is fine I mean I love humor about pooping oneself I'm a big fan of pooping oneself but it's (laughs) like (laughs) I'm I feel like I'm going to need to issue a PSA (laughs) Brie Rody does not poop self (laughs) Uh, correction hasn't in at least 30 years peak show issuing its first ever correction (laughs) oh no um but yeah so like as i'm i was asking jared what like his favorite mel brooks movie was and i was surprised i really thought he was going to say Spaceballs because jared was a kid who grew up on star wars and like saw empire in the theaters and stuff but his was history of the world part one um and uh i was i was surprised not because i don't think it's one of his best movies but just yeah i really thought it was going to be space ball so um i love history of the world so much it's um, i 
I, I love it because it's just, it's, it, it, it's very specifically, I think he said, you know, someone was like, what's your, what's your next, uh, you, your, what's your next movie? And is it a big one? And he was like, yeah, it's the biggest one ever. I'm calling it history of the world, you know, and what, what can I, uh, can you, can you do the whole history of the world in one movie? Yeah. Uh, well, maybe not history of the world part one. <laughs> um, and I just think that is just like such a, like, you know, microcosm of like his sort of approach to like, what can we make a story that's funny? Um, mm-hmm. And I, I love, I love this movie because of how much it breaks the fourth wall and sort of mm-hmm. like breaks down the sort of epic movie making process. Um, and because it's sort it's more, it's more a bunch of sketches than it is a, a cohesive narrative. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and because of that, you get to see like you get all the hits, all the all the all the fun, you know, Mel Brooks cast of characters. Um, and one of my personal heroes, Gregory Hines. Uh, um, yeah, also love I, him. Um, I I love History of the World Part One. I think I got really into it when I was uns- unsurprisingly, because I think a lot of people can identify with this when I was in my Monty Python stage. Oh yeah, oh mm-hmm. yeah, because you're looking for something to like fill that that like void that that watching holy grail for the 14th time left in your life (laughs) (laughs) speaking of movies that i could recite back to front um like it has it has like a slightly similar vibe but like more american and more jewish and i appreciate that about it um which to be perfectly honest, like so, I first saw History of the World when I part one when I was eighteen. We watched, uh, we watched it in my philosophy class. I didn't understand, and I was a kid who watched Seinfeld, like every single episode of Seinfeld. I didn't realize what Jewish humor was. Again, contextualizing where I grew up, I'm like, and I'm. It took me a long time to understand, like, oh, this is. F- this is the kind of thing I don't get because I don't like I didn't grow up in a Jewish community. <laughs> so um, watching it then back as an adult, even I'm just like, even even when I'm like, this humor is not like meant like it's not written for me, but I adore it. <laughs> well, it's, and that's the thing again, like and he if he doesn't identify as a Jewish humorist, then that's fine. But it's all it, it, call it Jewish humor, call it New York humor, whatever. It's not like you have to be Jewish to appreciate and get it either. Um, yeah. It's I never I never at any point feel like should I be laughing at this? Which again, like that's why he's one of those great filmmakers that you just can't pin down because it it is both true and pigeonholing him to identify him as like a Jewish filmmaker. You know? Yeah it it it's not it's not wrong, but it's also like it feels like too narrow. Um, Absolutely. No, I. I love History of the World, too. And interestingly, to go back to Richard Pryor, the Gregory Hines role was supposed to, again, be Richard Pryor. Mm-hmm. Um, By the way, I found he- the connection. Gregory Hines is buried in Oakville. Oh. Oakville, where John Tavares is from. Um, <laughs> yeah. He uh, he had uh, he had a girlfriend here or something like that. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, anyway. so Gregory Hines' role was supposed to be played by Richard Pryor. Um and it was approved and everything. And Richard Pryor was injured, uh, like uh, right before filming started, and so they had to uh, get someone else. But I, I think Gregory Hines in this movie is so fantastic, and mm-hmm. I, I always forget that he's like gonna dance, <laughs> and then he does, he does like do a number, and I'm like, oh, okay, yeah, this is great. Love, love mm-hmm. Gregory Hines. Um, but then, 
Then right after that, you jump to Spaceballs, which, you know, we talk about the Mel Brooks cast of characters and, and the Mel Brooks players, and almost none of them are in Spaceballs. Like, yeah. it's almost crazy, like, to kind of make the connection. I mean, Mel Brooks himself is in it, obviously, but... Um, and and as a kid, I didn't care because I loved Rick Moranis. I loved, you know, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, and I loved that Rick Moranis was Canadian, so I just loved Dark Helmet as a kid. But Yeah, the, I so I watched Spaceballs for, like, I think the first time since high school um, uh, for this. Um, and mm-hmm. one of my notes was, like, man, I miss Madeline Kahn already. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, I think it's it's – it's really interesting because you can see this sort of like marked shift in like, I think technology, like movie making technology, like the movie feels different, like in um, from history of the world, even mm-hmm. though it's like six years later. Um, but, you know, I, I definitely caught on some things that um, uh, that I didn't catch on, you know, the first time I watched it. And I think, you know, you kind of have the people sort of filling in the roles and you have a few of, of um, yeah, it, like interesting. Like when I was watching this, I was like, this is the first movie of his in this, this long that I've watched that feels dated, like in a way, like, yeah. and I don't, I don't really know how to explain that. Cause obviously they're all very much of a time, but like watching mm-hmm. this, I was like, this feels old. <laughs> this Confirmed feels like vibe it- shift. Yeah. Um, I think a lot of it had to do, if you look at the time that it came out, I think that was when you were seeing like the airplane naked gun type of spoof take off because this is really like the one i mean um besides high anxiety but even high anxiety had a different feel like spaceballs is inarguably a spoof it is not a satire it is a parody spoof and um it kind of is pro i hate to even say this because i know like quality wise they're not even in the same realm but it's kind of proto scary movie type uh stuff yeah i was thinking that yeah i think there's like there's there's some interesting things about sort of the actual like plot of Spaceballs and and like some potentially interesting uh commentary on like climate change and and resource use of Mm. of of the earth um but yeah, it it I think it's it's very it's very much like this is a spoof of Star Wars. That's what it is. And it it doesn't feel as layered as as some of his other movies that are less about like one like spoofing one specific movie. Um mm-hmm. I will say that like the the effects are like so similar to the Star Wars effects because he did use like George Lucas's effects company like mm-hmm. um, Industrial Light and Magic, yeah. Yeah. Um and that like that does make it like very specific and and I like that. And I I enjoyed this movie, but like it does lack something that his earlier movies have and that I would say Men in Tights has back later. Yes. Um I I think for me the best part of um of Spaceballs is John Candy. Um I think actually it's one of my favorite John Candy roles. Um And a weird thing about me, y'all know I'm obsessed with The Shining, but the, I have a hard time whenever I'm picturing the scene where Jack Torrance is going through the rooms and he walks in on the guy going down on the guy in the bear suit. Instead of the bears, I picture Barf the Mog. Um, I like, I just picture John Candy in that suit. That's horrifying, (laughs) Brie. 
You have to, you're gonna have to you're gonna have to like trigger warning this this uh this episode Problem. content warning Brie shits her pants and also this <laughs> every episode of Fake Show is slowly peeling back the layers. I mean, we had one nice episode about the Babysitters Club and friendship, and then this is about pooping yourself. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, I agree. Robin Hood Men in Tights is the much better. Again, it doesn't so much feel like a super spoof. It it feels like um, a very affectionate parody, but also um, it it brings back that humor of, like I said, like this just made me laugh. So it's going to make you laugh, you know? Um, yeah. And I also like Carrie Elwes a lot in it. I think Carrie Elwes is a very underrated actor. Uh, maybe not. He has a lot of crap. He has a lot of crap. But when he is good, he is amazing. And so I'm like, I'd rather he be remembered for, you know, this or um, or Princess Bride and maybe not so much everything else he's done. You mean like Saw 7? <laughs> oh, yeah, he was in the seventh <laughs> one. Is. But fortunately, fortunately um, him or he... in, in Robin Hood and Tights is a lot closer to Saw 1 era, Carrie Elwes, than... A solid 3D Carrie Elwes. Yeah, I was also um, thinking he was the uh, mediocre boyfriend in Liar Liar. But uh, <laughs> aside from him, like he's best when he's not having to squeeze in his uh, his accent really hard. Yeah. So yeah, I think you know watching Men in Tights. Uh, like this was another movie that I hadn't watched in a really long time because my my Mel Brooks rotation is is very much Blazing Saddles, Young Frankenstein, and History of the World. In, mm-hmm. in rotation so this was me revisiting a movie i hadn't i hadn't watched in a long time um and i think the great thing about this movie is it kind of like you said goes back to like the sort of same form and that you have the similar character types like you have carrie always playing what would probably be a, a gene wilder part you have uh mm-hmm. dave Chappelle, who i forgot was in this <laughs> playing you know uh, uh, a richard pryor uh um Gregory Hines, Cleavon Little role in this. Mm-hmm. Um, you have um, uh, who is it? I forget. Uh, Amy Yazbek is very much doing her best. Um, Madeline Kahn here, and um, Tracy Ullman is doing her very best. Cloris Le- Leachman. Like you can see, like where the the main cast of characters were they younger would slot in, and I mm-hmm. I appreciate that <laughs> in a, in a, a way because it it very much brings back the tone. And it was funny because I was watching this and taking notes and I was like, you know, this movie is like not very Jewish. And then in the next scene, Mel Brooks shows up as a rabbi. And I was like, you know what? <laughs> he just he just sprinkles it in. He just sprinkles um, it in. I do also appreciate that you have some throwback to the to the Mel Brooks players because you do have a Dom DeLuise part in it. Um, I also what, keep forgetting that this is, I think, the only time he's ever worked with uh, Sir Patrick Stewart. Um, yeah. He's someone I'd like to see. I mean, we'll get to this in our in our lightning round, but he's someone I'd yeah. like to see him work with more. Yeah. Um, I think going back to sort of Carrie Elwes, I think I, I have a, a deep love of, of Carrie Elwes um, from The Princess Bride mostly and this and um, a, a reoccurring role he did on the show Psych, which I love and not a lot of people do, but I, I do. <laughs> um, um, and I think he's so good when he's in these sort of, places where he can like be a little bit out there um and just like like sort of like 
flex comedically. Like, I think he's underrated as a comedic actor. Like, I think people see him in The Princess Bride and they think more about him as, like, a sort of, you know, uh, Hollywood sort of, like, love interest character. But he, like, he's very funny. And now I think he is, like, you know, he's he's still good looking, but he's not, like, you know, Dread Pirates Robert's good looking. Yeah. I mean, I know this doesn't exactly, ju- well, it, since Robin Hood Men in Tights is his least Jewish movie, um, yeah. I think it's fair to say that Carrie always is best when he's a ham. Um, yeah. And um, it's, you know, like, I know, Jason, that you brought up Saw 7 in jest, but there's a reason why I actually like Carrie always cameo in that is because he's actually embraced that he's supposed to be a cheesy, hammy weirdo in it and uh there are some actors that i think are best when they are full of ham and cheese i think that that's an excellent point uh to clarify i do not Mm. jest about the saw franchise the saw franchise is not the butt of the joke i am the butt of the joke for having seen jigsaw and spiral from the book of saw in theaters Man, you you risked the Rona to go see Spiral. I'm I'm I admire you. It, it, it didn't come to theaters here because we're still locked down. Well, yeah, because you're you're uh, uh, I don't know who controls movies in Canada, but they care about their people. The most the most exciting thing about Spiral um, is that it's the one Saw movie that's allowed to go outside, so you can just see like, oh, there's that Toronto landmark and that Toronto landmark and that ttc car (laughs) yet it's also somehow like 40 minutes in there's a there's an establishing shot and it's of the philadelphia skyline bizarre oh yeah sorry i didn't mean to derail this into a previously covered subject but it's always going to come down to either hockey or (laughs) or the simpsons but did you did you see uh spiral with dave yes not the same. Why do you know that it's Philadelphia? Story, by the way. I was gonna say, <laughs> too, you know, too many guys with like just basic dude names. We we need we need an Irving. We need an Irving. <laughs> oh, I wish we knew an Irving. <laughs> I have a Morgan. Morgan's a and he's a guy, so yeah, that that's, that's kind good. of a little bit non-traditional. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, so, are we ready for our lightning round, or do we have a few more? Notes I, I have one more point to make. I promise. Great. Because we haven't yeah. really talked about it since the producers, but I think that um, Mel Brooks, as a composer songwriter, is like a huge part of why a lot of his movies are successful. Because if there's if there's a movie and there's that he's done and there's not a song in it somewhere, I get upset. <laughs> <laughs> And like he he writes all of them like he like most like almost all of the songs in all of his movies are written written by him and um and I think that is somewhere where like he is incredibly talented and like kind of unrecognized for that but like all of the all of the songs in in all of his various movies are so good and so catchy and I just think that that's something that needs to be recognized. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, even when you're talking about, like, you know, the 2005 movie version of the producers and why it just doesn't work and how, you know, some people just can't translate stage into screen. But Mel Brooks, he truly can do it all. And he is very multidisciplinary. I wouldn't be surprised to know if he could also choreograph a number or two. Um, But I think also, like, understanding songwriting can really help you as a filmmaker and a film writer because you understand how to build tension. You understand how to conclude something really well. You understand how to introduce something. And I feel like um, as someone who is also like 
this I sound so pretentious when I say this, but as someone who identifies as a multidisciplinary artist, like I am a musician, but I am also a dancer or whatever, like it actually helps you really understand um, the artistic process extremely well. And um, I agree that as a songwriter, like, you know, he's it just because he's not going to go out and, you know, release an album doesn't mean that he is not an extremely talented songwriter. And I think um I, I think like, you know, like we said about the putting on the red se- sequence, it's, you know, one of the best musical scenes in all in all of cinema history. It's rooted in a deep love for music and love for performing. And that's where I say like that idealism comes back in and I have nothing but good things to say. <laughs> yeah. All right. Are we, uh, Kelsey, get your shock jock voice on because oh you're hosting God. a lightning round. It's the lightning round. Some of these questions are probably more open-ended than they should be for a lightning round. But, <laughs> you know. Okay. It's the um, lightning round. Asterisk, asterisk, asterisk. <laughs> the first three, I think, are are pretty, pretty fast. So uh, question number one, original producers or musical producers? Jason, why don't you go first? Uh, I'm going to have to go musical because I have not seen the original. We got to watch um, the original. We do. We do. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I also have to go with musical. Now, I have seen the original, but and I think I probably should be saying the original. I do think the original is like better, but um, because the musical was the first one I saw, it's what's informed in my mind. And I think you are right that Nathan Lane and Matthew Broderick were insanely well cast for those roles. And so even, like, I still even see them as as my leads more. So, But it's, yeah. it's very close. Yeah, I think I also would say musical, like the stage musical, because I have a lot of issues with the movie. But yes. Um, but yeah, I think I would also say like I really think that 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 story was meant to be a musical the whole time, and I think I I love Gene Wilder and Zira Mostel in the original. I think it's great, but I think it like it just brings something so much richer to it. So mm-hmm. we're all on the same page there. <laughs> um, okay, so two Young Frankenstein or Blazing Saddles. I'm gonna say Young Frankenstein. It is really, really, really close, but. Um... Young Frankenstein is more visually uh, like I think I think it's a total package in terms of visual acting, storytelling, music. Um, and so it just narrows it narrowly wins. I come back to it more often for sure. Jason? I think I have to go with my gut and say Blazing Saddles. I, I think young young Frankenstein kind of deserves a, a special uh, honoring, though, because if you want to watch like an adaptation of Frankenstein, you can really just watch Young Frankenstein. Um, that's not really true of, of westerns. I mean, that's a whole other thing. But uh, you know, if you want to watch a western, you probably you might not watch Blazing Saddles because it's got so much other stuff going on. But on top of it all, Young Frankenstein just a good good interpretation of the Frankenstein story. It still has all the stuff you want in it, and it's still black and white. It's got a guy with a big you know the, the neck bolts. He gets lifted up on the platform. <laughs> it's great. You got brains in jars. <laughs> of that but if it comes down to it blazing, blazing saddles, saddles is, is just you? like too funny it's just it's just too good <laughs> it's too funny yeah um i did this question so i wouldn't have to pick so i'm not gonna pick smart i know i think i think i think for me probably i revisit young frankenstein more mm-hmm. but blazing saddles 
maybe like makes me laugh in new ways more like every time I watch it. Does that make sense? So mm-hmm. it's hard to choose. And then finally, uh, as the either ors, um, space balls or men in tights. Go for it, Jason. Space balls. I'm just, you know, I, I, I have a <laughs> complicated uh, relationship with the franchise Star Wars, but I've always been a fan. And so, you know, space ball is just, I just, you know, is more, hits me more in the, in the pleasure center of my brain. Um, 16 year old me says space balls, but 33 year old me says men in tights. Um, I fully will admit I didn't appreciate men in tights enough as a teenager. Cause I think I was a teenager when I saw it. Um, space balls, I don't feel a need to return to as often. Um, and I also think men in tights is a little bit more quotable. I would say, I think I made this pretty clear when we were talking, I would say Men in Tights, definitely. I think a lot of that has to do with, like, I my relationship with Star Wars is not super formative. Like, I saw Star Wars for the first time as an adult. Um, and, you know, a lot of the jokes, like, went over my head the first time I saw Spaceballs. Um, I did, I did, I did have a good time this uh, watching it as an adult. Um, but, yeah, I think Men in Tights is just, like, it, it, it feels more of a piece of of Mel Brooks's oeuvre. Mm-hmm. Okay. So what's one historical era you would like to see in History of the World Part 2? Um, Victorian era. Victorian era England. Um, I, I was... I had a huge... Um, well, I mean, that was the focus of my English literature degree was uh, Victorian... Specifically, although... <laughs> Uh, this is dicey for anyone to take on, but considering how he handled it in Young Frankenstein, um, it could be potentially fun. Um, disability in Victorian literature uh, and the way we depicted madness and even physical disability. And I just feel like um, Mel Brooks's lightness to everything um, would be very interesting uh, to do with uh, with the Victorian era. So, uh, The American West. No, uh, maybe like maybe. <laughs> For some reason, I, I'm I'm landing on on World War II because I I feel like for all that he's done sort of around the subject matter of that, I don't uh, unless I'm forgetting something. There's not like a, a Mel Brooks movie or even thing that like actually takes place during that time period. So it doesn't have to be like a combat thing. It can also be. I'm, it's not like I'm pitching an actual movie, not just like a sketch in a, in, a, in a Hulu series. Yeah. But like you know the the home hmm. front as well. Anything like in that. Period. I would love to see him like just doing something with just out of curiosity for what that would what that would look like. Like a little sketch of people turning in their jewelry for scrap metal or yeah. something. He could yeah. he could yeah, do you that. Can, you can imagine it. Yeah. Yeah. Kelsey, what about yeah. you? I think. Um, I mean, I think I I do want to see his his take on like the depression because I think there's a lot to work with there. Depression and and uh, like prohibition, maybe at the same time (laughs) um um, or one leading into the other i think i think there's a lot to work with there and like what he what he likes to explore Mm -hmm. um oh vaudeville yeah i think that would be very much like the the i think like the first half of the 20th century in general is what i hope we get (laughs) Mm -hmm. um because i think you know once you once you get like to sort of past like world war ii i feel like there's it gets a little more like meta uh, from Mel Brooks's uh, point of view, which is not because well, he was part of the culture. Like, yeah, not not necessarily 
bad because he's kind of good at that and like sort of like bring to the point like you know that like pointing out like the thing that is obvious but unsaid often mm-hmm. so i think it, it could be interesting to see him sort of approach the sort of you know 50s post post world war ii sort of era uh in in america specifically but yeah i think my my dream would be for a, a depression slash sort of prohibition uh kind of situation um what is, you know, in, in full movie form, what is one, like, film genre you would like to see peak Mel Brooks tackle? So, like, you know, 70s Mel Brooks, in my opinion. We'll get to that. <laughs> yeah. All right, go for it, Jason. Uh, this is a little bit plain to type for me, but it's hard not to imagine um, early 80s or just between History of the World and Spaceballs, Mel Brooks doing a horror pastiche parody thing. Um, there was certainly a lot of uh, stuff going on in the genre at that time. I think that it has a lot of popular iconography behind it. And you know, who knows if that would even be funny, um, but I just would love to have seen it. Um, so I I would love to see, like, there's... We talked a lot about in our David Fincher episode about... Um, that kind of 2010s era of like bringing you know bringing novels to life whether it was you know trashy because like my my full belief is that gone girl was an extremely trashy book it was a good book but it was really trashy um or you know something more prestige like girl with the dragon tattoo but that kind of we're very serious we're making trent reznor score kind of like uh, you know, super tense dramas. It's a, it's adapted from a book, so you know it's serious. And so, like, I guess I there's not really a name for that, but that kind of, like, 2010s femme fatale drama um, because it feels like, you know, you talk about the way he writes women, and the women all fall into different tropes there as well, even though it's not the same. It's not the damsel in distress. It's not, you know, that, like, it's not this sexy blonde sidekick, but it is still, like, I... The women are still falling in tropes. You just don't notice it because they have brown hair, like that <laughs> kind of genre. I wish I had a name for it, but uh, yeah, the the mid twenty tens fake prestige. <laughs> yeah, that would be really interesting. I would, I would, I would. I think I would enjoy that. I think my my thing is kind of you know wrote, but um, I would love to see him do like the sort of Clint Eastwood Tom Hanksian war movie like mm-hmm. just straight send up of that of that kind of genre of of the sort of you know glorifying war and and probably world war Two specifically but we can get into a different war we could do vietnam if we wanted but like yeah i think i would love to see his like sort of actual combat movie and what that that would look like because i think it would be really really funny mm-hmm. um uh okay so since history of the world part two is supposedly happening are there specific actors that maybe weren't alive or weren't um you know just in the in the sphere at the time when he was really making things that you would love to see mel brooks work with there was an actor that i full-on mandela affected thought he'd worked with because they seem like such a good fit for each other that he never has so i would love to see them work together in in some capacity before mel you know tragically leaves us and that's john Turturro. Um, I think he is 
his timing is so good. He so commits to a character. He can be so big and yet so subtle. And I think he was made for a Mel Brooks movie. Jason? This is maybe less a, like, a, like a desire on my part than just calling my shot. But the Lonely Island guys, at least Andy Samberg, feels like they'll probably end up in there. So but why not you start looking forward to it now? That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. I think we we should give Andy Samberg more to do, you know? Like, I think he has a lot of talent in him and is not always utilized. <laughs> well, he's voicing, what, a, a squirrel right now or something? The, the rescuers? Oh, the rescue rangers. Yeah. Chip and Dale. That's... Was that not a Canada thing? You guys didn't have Chip and Dale? Do you guys not have chipmunks I, in Canada? I... <laughs> It's not. It's not a nostalgic thing for you because it's definitely like being. It's a nostalgia play. Yeah, and, and, for to sure. be perfectly honest, we have them. I just forgot what they were called. And he's, he's not a squirrel. <laughs> I, think we, I, I don't want to. I don't want you to have. You need to understand correction. how many. You need to understand how much how many drugs I have done in my life. I cannot remember <laughs> the names of these animated animals. Well, the chipmunks <laughs> are real, though. They exist in the real world as well. anyway kelsey i'm really curious as to who you'd who you'd want to see so this is like honestly mostly banking on the third season of this this show and my desire to see him do more and more outrageous comedy uh daniel radcliffe um oh i I totally thought you were gonna say jason sudeikis uh, you no, said third uh, season, and I thought the third Lasso. season of the show is Miracle Workers, which is a sort of Oregon Trail West pastiche, um, and it's great. <laughs> and so I was watching that, and I was watching Blazing Saddles, and I was like, Daniel Radcliffe's character could, could just like slot into this movie <laughs> pretty easily. In in the, his character from the third season of Miracle Workers could very easily, and I think I think he would put his whole like his whole self into it and have a great time. Um, and he also is a short Jewish man, like Mel Brooks. So you know, they'd have that in common. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think I think seeing seeing Daniel Radcliffe's post post Harry Potter career, like I just want him to do more and more like silly, silly stuff, silly and smart at the same time. And I mean, in the same way, like I think you could also throw Buscemi in there. Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Um, what. Well, now we're just making half an Adam Sandler movie. You know, we got John Turturro. You got Steve. Why not throw the Sandman in? He's the kind of guy. It's it's he would do it. You know, it just depends what he's doing that day. Yeah, I got nothing to do. <laughs> like, um, yeah. So I think yeah, my my shout is uh, Daniel Radcliffe. I think he would have a good mm-hmm. time. And I kind of hope if we do get like a sort of Dickensian Victorian era in a. <laughs> In History of the World Part 2, we, we see him, because I feel like he'd be, be very great. good at that. Um, yeah. And then my last, uh, last second to last question, penultimate question. Um, what Mel Brooks movie should be the next to transfer fully to the stage musical? Jason, you're going to have to take this, because I'm still deciding. Dracula, dead and loving it, coming to Broadway next year. We're going to bring it, we're gonna, we're gonna bring it back. We're going to do it right this time. Uh, it's gonna it's gonna revive the reputation of this unfairly maligned uh, Mel Brooks entry into the canon, and it's gonna be because I mean that's also like a blank slate because like I don't think anyone remembers that movie at all, it. or yeah, or has probably I guess yeah. no one saw it all when it first came out, right? That was the problem. So I think you're starting with a fresh slate. You've got IP name brand Mel Brooks recognition, but you can you got carte blanche. You got a blank slate, carte blanche, um, tabula rosa. 
uh, to do whatever you want. A funny Dracula musical. I would um, see a funny Dracula musical. I would. <laughs> see, funny Dracula musical is going to come up in my next answer. But um, <laughs> no, I... I think the only one that really works because I was going to be like, Young Frankenstein. And then I remembered Young Frankenstein was made into a stage musical. I think the only other one that works is High Anxiety. Um, I feel like you can have a lot of fun staging that. Um, And I think a lot of Hitchcock works have translated well to the stage as well. So that's kind of my belief. But I don't don't know if High Anxiety would work as a musical. I think it would work as a one to two act play. Yeah, because they yeah. did an adaptation I, of The 39 Steps a few years back on Broadway that was really good, and the staging mm-hmm. was, I mean, obviously it's very complicated uh, staging, but it was really cool. It was a straight play, though, um, but I'm imagining mm-hmm. High Anxiety, the musical, basically being The 39 Steps, the musical, and that could, yeah. I, think, I think you have something there. I do. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that could be really, really good. I think there's, you know, even if it's like a, it's a, you know, a comedy play with like two songs. Because, like, that mm-hmm. is the thing, too. Sometimes there's a play and there's, like, a song. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, but, yeah, no, I think I think that could be really, really interesting. Oh, my God, Google. <laughs> well, this is good because we, I think we can wrap this up in 10 minutes. Yeah. What the yeah, fuck, Yeah, I've got one more question. Oh, my answer for this is Men in Tights. Um, I yeah. think you you veer a little bit too close to it becoming too much like Spam a lot because it's kind of a similar era um, mm-hmm. or similar, like, feel. But um, I think I think that one is like pretty much ready to to move to move to the stage. Add a couple songs, mm. you're good. Uh, final question: Who should play Mel Brooks in the inevitable Mel Brooks biopic? Because I love casting things. <laughs> so originally I thought Alan Arkin, and then I realized Alan Arkin is only like seven years younger than Mel Brooks. Um, but Alan Arkin, I love him so much. Um, okay, so speaking of Dracula musicals. Jason Siegel. I think Jason Siegel would be fantastic. I think he has that goofy and endearing thing. Um, he, you know, he is a musical guy, as we saw in Forgetting Sarah Marshall and his little his little vampire musical. Um, and I think I think he has he's one of those guys, he's like he is handsome, but he, in a like inviting kind of way. He's not like Mister Super Handsome Leading Man. Um, yeah, I think he has the charisma, Jason. I, I really believe in Jason Siegel. I think he's too tall, but other than that, <laughs> yes, he's extremely tall. Uh, is he is he Jewish? I, I feel like personally, I would like. I the person thought to be he. Jewish. Yeah. I think he's played Jewish um, because there I mean, was that Siegel joke. Is in, a pretty Jewish last name. There was the joke in um, in uh, Knocked Up in which Martin Starr is apparently the only non-Jewish member of their friend group, which surprised me because I thought Martin <laughs> Starr was Jewish. But um, uh, yeah, I thought I just not gonna lie. I he, saw Siegel was, and I thought he, Jewish. He was bar mitzvah. <laughs> he is he is technically Jewish. Kelsey coming in with a clutch. Jason, who who did you think? Well, no, you. Now that my fear has been put to bed, I think Jason Siegel is a good choice. I, I, do, yes, I do wish he was I'm shorter, but maybe they can do like Lord of the Rings style perspective stuff to make him look yeah. uh, closer to the height that I imagine Mel Brooks is, which is very short. Yeah, 
He's very do whatever short. the opposite of what they did to Tom he, Cruise. <laughs> he was married. He was married for a long time to until her death to, to Anne Bancroft, who was taller than him. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, um, which I always love. I love looking at couples like that. <laughs> but um, I I agree with you all. I think this is a good shout. I think I think in my in my head the the Mel Brooks biopic is like a parody of biopics in general of like serious biopics yeah <laughs> <laughs> so i think it actually works really well that way um yeah so that was my last question and i think now i can pass it back to brie also well, the peak and now so and we've got we've got six minutes and 17 seconds left so <laughs> let's very quickly go around the horn and say when we think mel brooks peaked and why starting with our esteemed guest slash leader kelsey um i think that as much as I want to say it was later, I think Mel Brooks did peak in 1974 when Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein were released. I think it wasn't like a, a drop off necessarily after that, you mm-hmm. know, but that was yeah. the highest point, you know, and it's it stays pretty high. It's more of a plateau. <laughs> but, I, I yeah. agree because I don't think he would ever do anything that impressive again. And I don't mean he would never do a good film again. I mean, releasing two movies in the same year, one of those being the extremely controversial Blazing Saddles and everything he did to make sure that movie got made. And then if Young Frankenstein as well, the way he pushed back on the studio to get it uh, shot in black and white. Um, really, he could have just fucked off after 1974 and he would have totally earned it. Jason, what about Agreed. you? Yeah, 1974, February, <laughs> you go to the theater, you see... Blazing Saddles, uh, and you know it, it's one of the best comedies of all time. Ten months later, December that year, you go to see. Does that math check out? Whatever, forget about it. It's December. For yeah. whatever, <laughs> how many many months later it is, and you see Young Frankenstein, also one of the best movies of all time, and they're both by the same director. Uh, yeah, yeah. How can you? That's. I don't think anyone's ever had that kind of like a one year run on on films directed mm-hmm. like like Mel Brooks did in seventy four. So, if both of you could recommend three Mel Brooks vehicles to a friend, what would they be? So, I think you have to like. I think you have to go Blazing Saddles and Young Frankenstein. I think you just can't not. Um, mm. The third one is so hard, right? You know, um, because I think the producers is so important and interesting and was doing things that no one else was doing before. But then I think, you know, history of the world is so good and so fun. And, you know, and then I also think in an underrated way, I want everyone to watch Silent Movie because I watched it for the first time for this and was like, this is so funny. I can't believe he did this in the late 70s. Like, it's it's I just had such a great time. It's like such a it's such a fun, fun movie and it shouldn't work and it does <laughs> um and that's kind of what the whole movie is about so like i think i would have to put that as my third one just because like i don't think enough people have seen it and i want more people to see it and i think it really I... really captures like what he's about and has like it's him and dom de louise and marty feldman as like the main three people and it just really like it really like captures what his whole thing is. And since Caesar's in it too. And that, and that is also like who gave him his start. And he talked about how that's like how he sort of paid Sid back for, for getting him there was gave him like a starring role in his movie. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so, going, yeah. I'm going to go more concise mainly because Kelsey summed up the first two blazing saddles and young Frankenstein. I agree. You can't not. My third is high anxiety. 
Jason, what about you? I gotta dance with the one what brung me. Kelsey's order recommended viewing is the correct. Uh, I, I have no additions <laughs> or, or notes of any sort. Uh, so thank you so much to Jason and Kelsey for joining me. And thank you to Kelsey for leading this episode, bringing it, bringing in a topic that I otherwise probably wouldn't have explored. Um, and I'm so glad I did. So Kelsey and Jason, can you one by one tell us where we can follow you on the Twitters and uh, what you be talking about on there? Jason, why don't you yeah, go don't, first? don't follow me on Twitter. That's that's not a, a joke. I don't post there anymore. I don't think anyone should. Um, no disrespect. <laughs> um, you can follow my Instagram. It's, it's at somethingfell if you want. I don't know why you would. Uh, my photos are pretty good, though. <laughs> it's soothing. Yeah. Um, you can find me on Twitter at Kelsey Rebecca. Um, spelled i think the normal way but my name will be in this uh in in uh in wherever you found this podcast probably so you can find me um mostly i talk about uh sports um right now less hockey than normal because it's not hockey season but um uh, normally normally hockey um and then occasionally you know some leftist stuff and and unions and workers rights and being mad at the mayor of new york city you know that kind of thing um can relate we we do also have a podcast um still on hiatus despite what i said if you don't have the energy or the time to dedicate to watching all of our channels to see when it comes back you're not a real fan and you're not ready for the show (laughs) You're not ready for it. But we do have a back catalog of over 90 episodes that you can listen to if you want more of me and Jason. And Absolutely. and Bree. Bree's there too. Also, Bree, you Briefly. should come on again. Yes, please. So. <laughs> I, um, uh, only if we can make Jason like watch the Mighty Ducks. Oh, no. Google is, is shutting me off first. It's kicking me off specifically before <laughs> oh, I can yeah. answer this question. All right. This. Well, as for me, I've been your host, Brie Rohde, and you can find me on Twitter at prune underscore underscore Tracy, or follow this podcast on Twitter at Peak Show Pod. New episodes are due out every other Thursday, and we still have a few more episodes left for our second season, including our Star Wars Super Month. You do not want to miss it. And you can also take a look at our back catalog for episodes on the likes of filmmakers such as David Fincher, M. Night Shyamalan, uh, actors including Mike Myers, TV shows such as It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, The Simpsons, and so much more special thanks to jack dump for composing our original theme music and special thanks to jared daly for creating our show logo and all its art i've been your host brie roadie and remember let them all go to hell except cave 76 